Good morning, everyone. We are going to start uh, Module 3, Bible Training Institute, this morning. A um, little bit of history behind Module 3 um, and Module 6. Uh, they're both shorter than the others, and the reason is because we used to schedule this uh, fall, spring, summer, and the summer ones were shorter, and it would take somebody devoting their entire summer to revamp this, so we just uh, changed the name and we just kept two of the modules shorter. Um, <clears throat> as you we're going through this, just a little uh, planning, we're also doing, uh, if you're doing the, the extra reading, you're reading the Gospel and Personal Evangelism um, by Mark Dever, and we are, I believe in the schedule you got, uh, every couple of lectures is on that topic. Well, we're going to switch it around a little bit. That'll be all at the end. Um, we'll do uh, six sessions in systematic theology and in Bible survey. Then we'll do three in a row of the uh, evangelism topic. So if it seems a little bit uh, odd, that is why. So uh, we will get to it. But I, I wanted to do the evangelism uh, mini-series all together because that's, uh, that's pretty important. So today, let's talk about sin. Hamartiology, but we're going to pray first and then we'll um, get going with this. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the Lord's Day. Thank you that uh, even now we begin to push our minds and our hearts toward the cross, toward the things of God. We push away from all of the worries and cares of the world, Lord, all of which are temporary. And we come instead to gather with your people, to gather around the warm fires of the Word of God and the joys of our fellowship together. Lord, as we look today at the subject of hamartiology, from whence we have come, from the sin that you have, uh, you have saved us from, Lord, I pray that we would be all the more grateful and thankful for our salvation. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So, out of all the ologies, this is the hardest one to say. Um, I've heard it said, uh, uh, hamartology... This is not the study of hammers, nor is it the study of ham. Um, it is hamartiology. So let's say that together. Hamartiology. One more time. Hamartiology. Okay, now you're ready to go to heaven. Your sanctification is complete. This is from um, the Greek word uh, hamartia, which just means to miss the mark, to deviate, to go to the side, to aim and miss. So uh, that is thus the study of hamartiology. So we're going to, uh, we'll spend a couple of sessions on this. We'll do the first one today. I have a lot today. We'll see if we can get through it all. Basically, um, I just want to start with some thoughts from the world. Because this is an unpleasant topic. Uh, there's an antagonism toward the biblical view of sin. Um, in the world, and frankly, there's an antagonism toward the biblical view of sin in the church. And the reason for that is because preaching sin in the eyes of uh, sinful men doesn't attract people. And when you worship at the idol of attracting people and getting them into chairs so that your offerings can be bigger and your buildings can be bigger and uh, you can say that I've built some sort of monument, now preaching sin isn't as effective in that model. To be fair, all of the great uh, revivals in Christian history have always revolved around preaching sin. 
So you want the real church to grow, church capital C, you preach sin because that's where man's true need is. But there's been um, horrible antagonism. It used to be debated that uh, uh, we would say the humanists believe that humanity is basically good. The reason I say that it used to be debated is that now that's accepted truth among the whole world, that mankind is basically good. Um, Now, what we're seeing historically in the last 24 months is a division, though, that some of mankind is basically good if you believe the right stuff. Everybody else is inherently wicked and evil and deserves to die. That's what we're seeing in our culture. That's the direction we're headed. So that has shifted just a little bit. But um, all of those who, who make their own theology, their own religion, there's the, there's the unholy trinity today of mandatory masking, mandatory vaccines, and critical race theory. That's the unholy trinity of the new worldwide religion. Well, what is that... What is that based upon? It's based upon the idea that I am personally good enough to come up with my own morality. And so that is something that we have fought against, the view that humanity is basically good. For several hundred years since the Enlightenment, um, education, science, and technology supposedly show that we're basically good. And the traditional biblical view of the sinfulness of man, uh, that started to decrease over time. At uh, At the time of the Reformation, sin was being preached because you needed to be a sinner in order to be redeemed. And so uh, that went down, though. So how good are we? The 20th and 21st centuries combined have had more bloodshed than all other centuries in recorded history put together. So have we gotten better in every way? No, we haven't. Then there's the philosophy of determinism. That a person is primarily the product of his environment. Um, that a serial killer is a serial killer because of the horrible way he was raised. Um, what, what does that mean? It means that people are not responsible for what they do. And we see this today. You can just read the news and everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else. Um, there is no such thing as a politician who genuinely says, I messed up and I'm going to take responsibility for it. Everybody is blaming everyone else. And so uh, now you don't say, well, that person does bad things because he's a bad person. That person does bad things because his parents were bad people. And that's, uh, that's the philosophy of determinism. Then you have moral relativism. We, we live in a moral, morally relativistic society. It basically, standards of right and wrong shift with the tide. Polls show that more people in the United States today believe that the truth and moral, uh, moral principles are more relative than they are absolute. In other words, it depends on how many people believe something. That if a lot of people believe it, then it must be right. A lot of people believe something, then, then it must absolutely be the truth. And then you just have the antagonism of the fact that sin is an unpleasant subject. Especially when you're trying to uh, grow a positive church built on the fact, built on the idea of welcoming the lost. Um, you can welcome the lost to the church. You can't build a church on the lost. And so based on that fact, you have to stop preaching sin. And it's an unpleasant topic. We don't want to think of ourselves as bad. Um, it, for years and years, it's been common, common policy uh, among psychologists and psychiatrists to teach parents um, don't ever tell your children that they're bad. Well, the fact is, is that they are. They are bad. You're bad. I'm bad. You don't tell them that they're bad because of 
uh, your particular moral standards. You tell them they're bad because of God's moral standards. Now, I'm not saying that you sit down with your three-year-old and say, did you know that you're a horrible human being? But you're explaining the truth of sin and you're explaining what sin is and that, that you do the things that you ought not to do because of sin. So even talking about this subject, you get in here and you go, really, I just wanted to talk about Christ. Well, we talk about Christ so much because of hamartiology, because of sin. So let's uh, do some basics here. A basic definition of sin. I like Grudem's definition. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. And so we would talk first about original sin. The Genesis 3 fall of mankind uh, had immediate implications for Adam and Eve and for all of humanity. Um, and you might have some questions like, well, why is this our problem? Why is it that every single human, when they reach a certain age, always chooses to do wrong? Why is doing wrong so natural? Why is doing right so difficult? Well, the answer to all of those questions is original sin. Some theologians call it inherited sin. Uh, some of you have inherited traits from your parents that you either like or don't like, and you just inherited them. Well, we have inherited sin from our father, Adam, and we'll get to how that happened shortly. But where do we come up with this? Well, there's clear scriptural support for original sin. Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, uh, this, is, this is King David. He never had a shot. He was sinful from the womb. Now, that doesn't mean that, uh, this is another topic for another day, doesn't mean that an infant when he's born is immediately rebellious. Uh, the Bible does recognize the idea that a child has a, has a time before they know good from evil. Why, why do toddlers do evil? Well, they do evil because they're born into a sinful world and they are sinners, but it's not a conscious rebellion. Um, there does reach a point, though, uh, when it's conscious rebellion very, very soon, because you say, uh, do this, and what does the child say? No. That's right. You can see it starting to form on their lips. You see that, that uh, lingual no going. And if you're a good parent, you already got your hand going back like this. For ready, it should go no, like that. Why do we have to do that? Because sin nature takes over 100% of the time. That is original sin. Ephesians 2, 3. Among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is original sin. All of mankind. And then, of course, uh, our main text on original sin, Romans five twelve and following. Romans five twelve. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So the, the old debate is, do you sin because you're a sinner or are you a sinner because you sin? It's a silly question. It's all of the above. Um, you, you sin because you're a sinner and you're a sinner because you sin. You're guilty on your own. You also inherited Adam's guilt. So this brings us to the topic of imputation. To impute is to reckon or to charge to one's account. And there's basically three major imputations in the Bible. There is the imputation of Adam's sin to the human race. That's Romans 5.12. Just as sin came to the world through one man. It's charged to us because of Adam. 
Then there's the imputation of man's sin to Christ. That's the answer to the imputation of sin from Adam. So, the, so what does that mean? It means that now Christ is credited with our sin. And that's why he died on the cross. And then you have the imputation of Christ's righteousness to believers. We're credited with the righteousness of Christ. So there, there is salvation in three simple explanations of imputation right there. That because of Adam, we're all sinners. And because of Christ, uh, Christ took on our sin and he gave to us his righteousness. So there's, uh, there's the problem of sin and the solution to sin. Now, how have people interpreted original sin? And I want to talk about this for a little bit here. And, and uh, I don't know that you need to write all this down. But I, I want to go through some of the major views of original sin. Uh, there's the Pelagian view. The Pelagian view says that Adam's sin doesn't affect uh, human nature. That instead, Adam was just a bad example. Um, so we're sinners because we choose to act badly just as Adam did. Uh, in, in other words, uh, every single human being has made the conscious choice to be just as sinful as Adam. That that's what we've done. Uh, this position was named after Pelagius, a 5th century monk who held that a man didn't have a sin nature and that a person could obey God perfectly without any divine grace and that salvation by works is possible. He was, of course, condemned at the Council of Carthage in 418. Um, He was a heretic. Then you have the Arminian view, um, otherwise known as semi-Pelagianism. The Arminian view says that because of Adam, all people inherit a a corrupt nature, like that you're, you're not a great person. You're, you're pretty bad, but not totally bad. Our nature is different, and we all have a tendency to sin. But the Armenians believe in a concept of, uh, that we call prevenient grace. Now, this is a little confusing because there is a good use of the term prevenient grace, which simply means God giving grace before it's even known to be needed. But the way they use the term prevenient grace um, says that the grace of God has been given to every single human being in all of history and whatever guilt and condemnation that might have been imputed to us through Adam's sin has been removed and that now um, we're not condemned for the depravity of our own sin nature uh, although that nature is the cause of sin what what it says is that because we have prevenient grace that at any time we want we can just choose to come to God that we can choose salvation that would be the Arminian view I don't think this does justice to Romans 5.12. It says, all sinned. That is a huge statement. The Arminian view says that Romans 5.12, all sinned, refers to the sins each individual commits, um, which results from our sort of corrupt nature. Um, But the, the tense of this particular verb doesn't refer to an ongoing action. It refers to a past action. And so when it says that all sinned, it says it means all sinned in Adam, that you are already a sinner the moment you were born. So that's the Arminian view. Then there's the federal view. The federal view is that Adam acted on behalf of the entire human race when he sinned. And a lot like the actions, uh, maybe put it this way, of a head of state uh, affects the entire country, whether they want them to or not, and we're living that now. Um, Adam represented all of us when he chose to disobey God. Um, those who hold to the federal view point to the Adam-Christ parallel, which you have in Romans 5, is very, very clear. 
um, that just as we're considered righteous because of Christ's righteousness being imputed to us in the same way um, Adam's sin was imputed to us, even though we personally didn't sin when Adam sinned. So uh, the federal view has a lot more going for it. We would definitely cross off the Pelagian view. The Arminian view uh, tries to be friendly to people and give them more credit than they're due. The federal view um, is, is probably uh, the most accurate so far. Um, and I think what really makes it a strong view is the two parallels between uh, humanity and and uh, the two heads of humanity, rather, Adam as the representative of sinful humanity and Christ as the representative of righteous humanity. So that comparison makes the federal view very important because we're saved because of the headship of Christ and we were doomed because of the headship of Adam. And New Testament even says that. Then there's another view you might be less familiar with, the Augustinian view, sometimes called the seminal view. The Augustinian view says that all humanity was actually present in seed form when Adam sinned. Now you say, well, that's silly. In other words, we're talking about his physical body, that that all of you were in his body when he sinned, and therefore you are credited with his sin. And some would say, well, that's that's, uh, pretty silly. It's actually a pretty strong view, and I'll tell you why. Well, first of all, that was the position of Martin Luther and John Calvin, um, and the church father Augustine. But Hebrews 9, or Hebrews 7 rather, 9 and 10, gives a precedent for this sort of thinking. That a person is present in the loins of his father, so to speak. Hebrews 7, 9 and 10 says, And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. A uh, little bit of history. So Abraham, after a victory over kings who had kidnapped his family, um, goes to Melchizedek, the, the, the kingly priest of Salem, which would become Jerusalem, and he gives a tenth of all the spoil that he had given. And what Hebrews 7 says is that Levi, who is his, would be his great-grandson, wasn't even born yet, gave those tithes also because he was in Abraham's body. So the seminal view actually um, has a lot going for it. That position helps explain how we can all be guilty for Adam's sin. That when Adam sinned, we sinned. And so we can't make the charge that innocent people are wrongly imputed with Adam's sin because everybody was in Adam's body according to that view. So, what do we make of all this? The Pelagian view, totally unbiblical. The Arminian view does emphasize correctly that we have a corrupt nature, but it doesn't do any justice to the idea that all have sinned in Adam. And so at this point, it becomes a really close call between the federal view and the Augustinian view. Um, The the Augustinian or seminal view is attractive because it helps explain how everyone, even infants and those who haven't reached the state of being accountable for their actions, how they can be guilty and under condemnation. On the other hand, though, the federal headship view keeps the parallel between the two heads of humanity, um, Adam and Christ. I think that's slightly better than the seminal view. So if we were going to... uh, Put these in order, like uh, four horses running down the track. Uh, the federal view comes in first. Augustinian barely comes in second. Those two both crashed and burned on the course and should be shot. So, <laughs> so we, the, the good thing is, whether you believe the federal view or the Augustinian view, and I think for me, I'm kind of a combination of both, um, you, you, you're a sinner from two different angles, at least. 
So uh, really, the competition just helps the view of original sin overall. And now we get to a part of sin that is, uh, that is hotly debated among Arminians. And they would disagree with this, and that is the view of uh, total depravity. Total depravity, let me give you a, a definition. Mankind in his natural state is completely contaminated by sin to such a degree that he is unable to change. Depravity involves the entirety of the individual and the entirety of the human race except for Christ. I'll read that one more time. Mankind in his natural state is completely contaminated by sin to a degree that he is unable to change. Depravity involves the entirety of the individual and the entirety of the human race except for Christ. So what's the scope of total depravity? It is universal to all mankind, universal to all humanity. 1 Kings 8, 46, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and given to an enemy, and so forth. There's no one who does not sin. That's universal. Psalm 14, beginning in verse 1, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Interesting to me that in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, the seeker-friendly movement didn't take into account that according to the Bible, there is no one who seeks after God. There is no one seeking for God. There are people seeking for ways around the gospel, but they're not seeking for God. Do you see already how this changes how you would even present the gospel, how you would think about the gospel? And it also changes who is in charge of people getting saved because we can't do it. We cannot overcome total depravity. <clears throat> the, um, the, the whole uh, movement of forcing people through long, extended emotional uh, worship services to come to the altar. This, this happened in the early 1800s and just got worse and worse and still practiced today all over the world. Um, this was based on a belief that total depravity doesn't exist. That through emotion and through, uh, through words that are repeated over and over again and through the speaker's affect that if, that if I'm you know, throwing my Bible around and I'm sweating and I'm just, just really into it, that I can convince you to become a Christian. Now, does that mean that we don't desperately plead and convince people for the gospel? Of course we do. But that's because we're called to do that, and that is God's tool. But nobody comes to Christ without the Holy Spirit because of total depravity. If you take away total depravity, now the Holy Spirit is only partly involved in salvation. If the Holy Spirit's only partly involved in anything, then he's only partly God. You see how this goes down the road of heresy really fast. So total depravity... Um, is absolutely important. There's a reason that this is included in the uh, acronym TULIP, right? Total depravity. By the way, after Steadfast, I'm going to preach a short series called TULIP, the flower of salvation. Um, we just want to be reminded of those truths. Um, so how comprehensive is it? Maybe some people aren't quite as bad as others. Well, let's see here. It affects the will. Now, I didn't put any scripture references up here, and I'm not sure why I didn't, so you might write these down if you want. Uh, Romans 1.32. Romans 1.32 says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Aha! 
Humanity is capable of knowing what is right and wrong. We have a conscience. We have the law of God at, at a level, at least in our conscience, that we know instinctively murder is wrong. And yet we choose not to obey the law of God. So that brings even more guilt. The will, Ephesians 2, verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Listen to this. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Everybody sins because they want to. I think that's a great question to ask an unbeliever. Do you ever, do you ever mess up? Well, yeah, I mess up. Well, what is the, you know what the Bible calls that? It's called sin. And it means to miss the mark. Do you do it by accident or do you do it on purpose? Oh, I do it by accident. Well, you know what the Bible calls that? It's self-righteousness. That you have now just tried to save yourself because you're blaming fate or chance for your sin. Are you here to tell me that actually every single time you've done something wrong, it was completely an accident? Most pe- reasonably people will say, no, I, I've done things wrong because I wanted to sometimes. Why is that? Because total depravity affects the will. How about the mind? Romans one twenty one. for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And then we could also use Ephesians 4.17 and 18, which speaks of the mind needing to be turned over. So total depravity affects the mind. You cannot, by means of logic, by means of intellect, by means of um, mathematics or science or any other mental exercise, come to the conclusion that I need a savior because I'm a sinner. You cannot come to that conclusion on your own. That is solely the work of the Spirit of God. Your mind is corrupt. And so you might say, well, why do we even evangelize then? Because God says to. And it is God using the power of the Word of God through the Spirit of God to change the mind. What is, uh, what is the Greek word for changing your mind uh, translated to in English? Repent. To change your mind is to repent. And so God changes your mind about sin. You then respond by changing your mind about sin. And now you're no longer under total depravity. And then it affects the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Genesis 6, 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And you might say, well, what's the difference between the mind and the heart? The heart just encompasses all of who you are. It's all of you. There, so, in other words, you get covered from three angles, the will, the mind, the heart. There's no part of you that was not darkened by sin, utterly and completely. And you, you all believe this because you can all think back to, to the moment in time or maybe the period of time, if you're not sure of the moment, where your mind was changed. And you look back to your pre-salvation self and, and you just go, what was I thinking? That's total depravity. It doesn't mean that you acted as bad as you possibly could. There are moral people who are totally depraved because they think that they're righteous in their own good works. Every uh, unsaved person is not a serial, serial killer, but they're still darkened. They still need Christ, and they won't know Christ unless God brings them to that point. How about the ability to please God? 
Romans 8, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Somebody tells you, well, I'm, you know, I, I try to do good things for the Lord. Really? Romans 8 says that you can't. Nobody can please God. Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or a filthy rag in, in other translations. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So somebody says, well, I, I do good things and God should recognize that. Isaiah 64, 6 says that your good things are like giving God your dirty laundry as a gift. John 6, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, alone destroys Arminianism. It just completely obliterates it. What does total depravity not include? And we already spoke about this. It doesn't mean that all people always act as badly as they can at all times. And total depravity doesn't mean that humans can't do relative good in some ways. Unbelievers do things that are good for society, good for their friends, good good for their family. And that's a mercy of God. Aren't you glad that every single unbeliever isn't acting as badly as they possibly could? If you've ever had an unbelieving doctor uh, that has worked on you, I had a Muslim doctor do some surgery on my shoulder and he asked what I did as he was getting the knife out. And I said, I'm a Christian pastor. And I... and I said to him, I joked about how interesting it is that you have a knife to my throat right now. And uh, he thought that was funny, but he did a really good job. And, and he followed up with an email. He was a very nice man. And I appreciated that. Uh, I wish I had known he was a Muslim before I went under the, uh, the knife, but that's okay. He was a nice guy. There are lots of very, very nice unbelievers. And so let's be very clear they can do relative good. And we're blessed by that. We're blessed by uh, our, our firemen and our police officers and by medical personnel and all the people who do good things in our society. But they cannot do spiritual good. They cannot change their status before God. No uh, doctor who has worked on thousands of COVID patients and so forth is going to stand before God and say, but I did all these good things. God will say they're a filthy garment to me because you cannot make up for your own sin with good things. And we've used this illustration before, but that's like murdering someone's family member and then getting out of prison and saying, can I mow your lawn to make up for it? No, it doesn't make up for it. It doesn't bring anybody back. So yes, there can be good things from unbelievers But unbelievers can't do spiritual good. They can't do things that will gain them credit with God. And I think a great question to ask an unbeliever too, if if they're really hanging on to this, but I do good things. All right, so you're rolling the dice that you've done enough good things to outweigh the bad. You're rolling the dice and in your last moments on this earth, you're willing to roll those dice and gamble with your eternity that you've done enough. Even a lot of reasonable people would say, you know, I'm not sure if I've done enough. And then your answer, obviously, is, well, you can't do enough. And that's why Christ had to come. So uh, total depravity, I think, gives a great opportunity for sharing the gospel with uh, with, uh, others who don't know Christ. So when people say, well, are you telling me that I'm like this horrible, terrible person? No, I'm not telling you that. You do good things. That's fine. They just don't, they don't have any credit with God. There's no credit with God. It's a currency that God does not accept. 
It's like going to a foreign country and trying to give them a dollar bill. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So you might talk about then about degrees of sin. Let's talk about uh, legal guilt. As far as legal guilt goes, there are no degrees of sin. No sins are more important or less important to God. In other words, doing fewer and lesser uh, intense sins, so to speak, won't get you more credit with God. Adam and Eve learned that one act of disobedience brought death. Genesis 2.17, eating forbidden fruit doesn't seem like that big a sin to many, and it has been the subject of many, many jokes throughout the centuries. All he did was eat fruit. By the way, it wasn't an apple. The Bible doesn't say it was an apple, just so we know. Eating forbidden fruit doesn't seem that big, but sin is disobedience to God. That's a major thing. Uh, Violating a command of God is thumbing your nose at the one who made the command. Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's everyone by all things written in the book of the law. And you might say, well, is that the Mosaic law or the law of Christ? Doesn't matter. You've broken them all. You've broken all the laws of God in any way you can possibly imagine. And if you've only broken one, according to James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law, nobody actually does that, but, but to, be, to use hyperbole, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Why is that? Because you violated the one who made the law. In fact, it goes on to say in James 2.11, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Let me put it to you in a way that maybe you can understand. If you have children and one of your kids says, I hate this one rule that you've made and I'm going to break it over and over and over again, but the rest of them I think are great and I would like credit for the fact that the rest of them are great. What, what do you know instinctively about that child? That child doesn't actually believe that the rest of them are great. Because if he's willing to violate one, he's willing to violate them all. And that goes to the heart issue. Therefore, God says, if you violate even one of my laws, it tells me you're, you have a heart, a will, and a mind to violate all of them. Does that make sense? So that's why you're guilty of all. So as far as legal guilt, no sins are more or less important to God in degrees of sin. As far as consequences in life, yes. Consequences have degrees based on sin. James 19.11, Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus just said that Judas sinned more than Pilate, is what he's saying. James 3.1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That at some level, there's, there's a level of higher accountability, higher judgment, if you want to use that term. Matthew 11, beginning in verse 20, Jesus states that the Jewish cities that heard the message of the kingdom will fare much worse than the Gentile cities who didn't have such a revelation. That greater knowledge brings greater responsibility. So, in other words, the person who has heard the gospel a thousand times and refuses Christ has a greater responsibility, a greater consequence than the one who never heard the gospel. So, I guess uh, for us, this has all been theoretical 
uh, theology for this moment. But for us, the important part to consider is what happens when you sin? What happens when the Christian sins? And, and before we just get to these facts here, and these are easy to understand. Um, before we get to these, I think the reason this is so important as a pastor, one of the things I hear all the time is all kinds of made-up theology about what God is doing to me. That, well, I'm going through this trial. It must be because I did such and such. Can I just say right now that that is an impossible exercise to walk through and it's not helpful? Um, if you're going through a trial, you always assume that it includes some level of discipline from the Lord. Why is that? Because Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines those whom he what? Loves. So, okay, discipline is for our good. He's treating me like a son, like a daughter. Um, whether that has to do with, with unrepentant sin, it may. 1 Corinthians 11 says that. The good thing is, is that uh, what it does is it makes you search your heart. Okay, I need to search my heart for everything. I need to ask those closest to me, how have I sinned against you? How do you see me sinning against others? Because you don't know. So there is an element of, of uh, self-examination that is very helpful. But you can't live your life making up a theology of that, that I committed this sin, therefore this bad thing is happening to me. You need to assume that there is some connection, but you also assume that bad things happen because we live in a sinful world and God loves you and is disciplining you for his, for his glory and for your good. What is troubling though is when believers begin to take one of two extremes extreme number one they believe in grace to such a level that their their conscience isn't really pricked anymore they begin to sear their own consciences because they don't repent of sin they don't uh, deal with sin in their life they just let it keep festering and growing and not really dealing with it first corinthians 3 has the answer for those christians that you will go to heaven but it'll be like somebody threw a fire that's naked and barely made it that yes you, your salvation is intact but but you didn't do anything worthwhile god's not going to count uh, your good works toward your reward if you're in the middle of constantly being unrepentant the other side though are the christians that just think that Romans 8.1 was taken out of the Bible. There's no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ and live under this just constant burden. Oh, I just, I, I sinned again this minute and I did this and I did that. Isn't it nice to confess sin and just relax for a while and let it be okay? Um, there's a whole, there's a whole a belief system. Billy Graham subscribed to this that you are, in and out of salvation depending on what state of confession you're in. He wrote a whole book that basically said that if you commit suicide, you're going to hell as a Christian because you didn't have time to confess that sin. What if you're, what if you're driving on a mountain road and you drive off a cliff? Are you going to be saying the Lord's Prayer on the way down? I don't know what your last thoughts are going to be, but I'll bet they might be somewhat sinful. Like not trusting the Lord at this moment because your body is saying, I'm about to die. So on the one extreme, uh, the free grace people say, oh, you don't ever have to confess sin. I've heard people preach that, never confess sin. On the other side though, boy, isn't the cross worth not living under the condemnation that Romans 8, 1 says we're free of? So what do we do with our sin? Well, let's talk about that. This is important. 
There is no change in your legal standing before God. There's no change. Can you imagine being a child and thinking that every time you disobey your parents, your parents may throw you out of the house? That is a horrible thing to be under. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me put it this way. There is absolutely nothing you can do. You could be over on this side of just sinning your way all the way to the grave and there's nothing you can do to change your legal status as being seen by God as perfectly righteous. That's an amazing thought, which makes, doesn't that motivate you to obedience? That you don't want to, you don't want to th- uh, uh, throw that in God's face? 1 Corinthians 15.3 says that Christ died for our sins. That's it. He, he died for our sins. There's no good reason to believe that this doesn't apply to all of our sins, past, present, and future. Um, for those who still struggle with believing you can lose your salvation, you might not use those terms, but you might feel like you're, you're closer to it. Uh, we always like to bring up the fact that when Christ died on the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, and that that includes not only those who are executing him, but it includes all who would come to faith in him. How many of your sins had you committed yet when he said that? None of them. And so your sins are forgiven start to finish. 1 John 1, 8, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, he acknowledges that all believers sin. And yet he also states, we are God's children now. 1 John 3, 2, once a child of God, always a child of God. Once adopted into the kingdom, always adopted into the kingdom. Once an heir of Christ, always an heir of Christ. Once um, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, always indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So the reason that we can take Hebrews 4, uh, which says to come boldly to the throne of grace, to find help in time of need, the reason we can take that so seriously and go running to the Lord is because there is no change in legal standing. Now, I won't ask you to raise your hand because I know all of you would, but how many of you have ever thought after walking through a particularly heinous sin that you needed to take a couple of days to let God cool off before you go confess to him. Don't we think that way? You know what the fact that our legal standing doesn't change means? It means we run to him immediately in prayer, which brings us to our our fellowship with God. There's no change in legal standing, but sin does hinder your fellowship with God. Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In context, what is, what is it that's grieving the Holy Spirit of God? It is Ephesians 4.29 when you let corrupting talk come out of your mouth. What is corrupting talk? It is talk that makes somebody believe something wrong about another. That grieves the Holy Spirit. There is a, there is a sense in which your fellowship with God is hindered. That if you're going to denigrate and run down one of God's children, why would that not grieve God? Why would that not grieve our our Savior, and our Father. Hebrews twelve six. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So to restore fellowship at times, God may bring some difficulties into your life. You know, it's a wonderful thing is when um, a trial comes that makes you just dive to your knees and you're in, you're in prayer and you are, uh, you're, you're not taking any chances. So you're confessing everything you possibly can. It ever occurred to you that maybe that was the whole point of the trial was to get you to that moment. I, 
I'm trying in my life when, when I have a, a day that is particularly challenging to just bless the Lord for the fact that prayer comes so much more easily. Doesn't it come easy when, when you're hurting? Like, and if you're hurting badly enough, it's all you can do. And that's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. That is the Lord disciplining you to do what? To restore fellowship. And you tell that to your children too. You discipline them because that's what restores fellowship between you and them. Without discipline, there's no fellowship. Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Oh, I love that. That your repentance, your, your coming to the Lord in sorrow for your sin and a desire to change should be done with zeal. Not kind of a putting one toe in the water. It should be you diving to the, to the throne of God. I used to live in a house when I was a kid that had a big, long hallway. And interestingly enough, it was two houses that were connected years and years earlier. So the hallway was polished concrete. It was curved and it went downhill. It was the coolest hallway in the history of all, all uh, hallways. And so uh, if you put just a little bit, don't tell my mom this, put a little bit of Crisco uh, down near the bottom and my brother and I go running and we go slide, you could slide just all the way into the next room and that was a, that was a blast. And it polished the floor at the same time. That's how we ought to be running to the Lord, zealous for repentance, running to the throne of grace and sliding into home to come to him and not not saying, Lord, I, I hope you'll forgive me. We're thanking him that through the cross, forgiveness is guaranteed. So those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Romans 6.16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So if you've been acting like an unbeliever, acting like you're a slave to sin, you go running back to your father but don't think that you can be on this side that I, I said where you say that grace covers everything i don't need to confess sin i don't need to confess sin you're walking in a life with hindered fellowship with your father you have hindered fellowship it doesn't mean your legal standing has changed just like when your child is is recalcitrant and is rebellious and and you spank a little one and they turn around. We always train parents to, to look at the look on their face and to feel their bodies. A small child that you spank and they're repentant, their bodies go a little bit limp and their face looks kind of sad. But when they turn around and they got this like that, have you ever had a child literally growl at you? They turn around and they growl. What does that mean? It means that fellowship is hindered and it means that more discipline is necessary, Right? That's why, that's why the Lord divided the rear end into two hemispheres, because you can go at it twice. That is what hindered fellowship is. So what do you do with the child? You let them know there is, there's a broken fellowship with us. But as soon as they have been punished and as soon as there, there's repentance, what do you do with the child? If you're a godly parent, you embrace them and you hug them. You don't say, I'm going to be mad at you for the next five days even though you've already been punished. You don't say that. So, yes, uh, fellowship is hindered, but you can restore that fellowship very quickly. Why do we take the Lord's table? One of the reasons is, is that it forces us to examine our hearts. It forces us to get back to fellowship with God. And that doesn't mean that I've 
done everything perfectly, what it means is that I have searched my own heart and I'm not in a state of rebellion against the Lord at this moment. So, what happens when the Christian sins? No change in legal standing. I I hope you take that away um, from today that uh, you're going to be sinning as long as you live and won't death be sweet? When, when you're about to go home, you can literally say, I, I, I'm almost done sinning. I'm almost finished with that. And yet we also want to keep our fellowship with the Lord uh, unhindered. And that's a, that's a lifetime process. That is a lifetime of, of receiving His grace over and over and over again. That's why we have what some theologians call the means of grace. We have the Word of God. We have prayer. We have uh, we have gathering together as the body. We have the Lord's table. We have baptism. All of these things that that just continually remind us of the grace of God. So there we are, Hamartiology Part One. Um, we have like two minutes for some questions. If you have any questions on what we've talked about today, yeah, Nate. Oh, that he was a better citizen, and so... You know, um, I, Matthew 11 actually would probably indicate that, that there is going to be greater judgment for the Jewish cities that heard the, heard the message and didn't believe than those that would have believed if they had heard the message. So I think we could, we could actually make a case for that. Um, to me, it's a moot point. It's like saying, "It's like saying, hey, would you rather have your arm chopped off with no anesthesia or just your foot?" Okay, it's like, don't go there, literally. So, um, I would, I would say just the opposite. I would say how horrible it is uh, to my child. How horrible it is if you become a moral person and you believe that will gain you some points with God. The Bible calls that being a Pharisee. And that is, that is a horrible thing and you will suffer for all eternity for that. So just because you uh, vote and just because you uh, obey the laws, just because you do nice things in your community, don't think that earns you any points with God. It's nice that you do those things, but no points. No points at all. Because um, there's no comfort in, you know, would you, rather, would you rather burn alive for five minutes or five hours? Um, how about burning alive for all eternity? So I... Whatever those levels are, if they exist, you just don't want any part of it whatsoever. There's no comfort. Nobody in hell is going to go, well, at least I'm not down there. They're not going to do that. So, yes. We always want Christians to bear fruit. So let me, let me tell you what is impossible. 
What is impossible is for that person to have assurance of salvation. If their assurance of salvation is based on the fact that I was nine years old and I went forward to the worship service and I got baptized, they're not saved. If they've borne no fruit whatsoever because their assurance is based on an action that happened. If they're saying, I'm living a carnal life, I know I'm in sin, I know I'm in rebellion, and I need to repent, that's probably a saved person um, who, who, who believes that. But no, that's, that is a, that's one of the biggest lies promulgated in the church. Unfortunately, like Southern Baptist Church is the worst about this. It's just convincing people that they're saved because they dragged them forward and manipulated them emotionally. So I, ultimately, the carnal Christian, let's use biblical terms, um, a Christian who is unrepentant about uh, the discipline of the Lord. And the Lord ultimately will, in some cases, just kill that person and take them home. Um, Ananias and Sapphira you know, would, would be one example. There's no indication that they weren't believers. Um, they were just lying to the Holy Spirit. So God took them. Um, so, you know, when somebody says, well, I, yeah, I'm a Christian because I got baptized at such and such time, whatever, I would tell them, well, your life doesn't show it and you can't have any assurance. You, you're rolling the dice that that thing that happened when you were nine was real because your life doesn't look like it at all. I'd rather somebody get saved a thousand times who was saved the first time than somebody think they're saved and think they have no need of Christ. There's going to be so many people See also Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, did we not also do these mighty works in your name? So many people who grew up in the church who will go to hell because of that one-time thing. So uh, is it possible to be a Christian that essentially lives a disobedient life? I think it is. Um, it, it should be rare, and it's the, the, those are ones that are sometimes disciplined out of the church, uh, ought to be. Those are the ones that the Lord disciplines even to the point of death. Um, so again like hell just don't be in that category stay close to your father Um, be ready to confess sin like that Um, both to the lord and to others around you good questions one more yes elizabeth how do they get around that i i i don't know I don't know. I honestly don't. Um, no one can come to me except the, the except uh, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Um, I think they would probably say, "Well, the Father uses different means. That He uses the the passion of the preacher. That He uses logic. That He uses intellect." Um, well, compare that to John three that says that the Holy Spirit blows where He will and changes the hearts of men. So the Father draws, the Holy Spirit draws. Um, the gospel is the means, not human means the the gospel is supernatural it's not natural so i think that's how they would get around it um but i'll I'll tell you this uh this is a little bit snarky but i say it with a smile if you're speaking to somebody who believes that they came to faith in christ of their own intellect i would love to ask have you asked them the question do you pray for the lost well of course i do why do you pray for the lost if it's a human decision why pray? What are you praying for God to do? I'm praying for God to interve- intervene. Because when it comes to it, a saved Armenian still wants God to intervene in the lives of their lost loved ones, right? So I would say that a true believer who is an Armenian is actually a closet Calvinist. So <laughs> on that note, why don't we pray? <clears throat> Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for drawing us to Christ.
Thank you, Father, that our legal status before you is that of righteous sons and daughters for all eternity. And thank you that we may boldly approach the throne of grace. And thank you that despite our total depravity, at a moment in time, by your grace and your kindness, the Spirit of God blew like the wind, completely at your behest, and opened our eyes to see Christ, opened our ears to hear the gospel, and opened our heart to receive our Savior. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.